I am Citizen 44. Hello. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm just laying down. I'm just kind of tired. Okay. What's happening? Nothing. I'm just uh, sitting here uh, working on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Mom didn't, mom didn't feel good. She's sleeping. Oh. There's some shit going around. What kind of shit? Well, everybody's got a cold or something around here. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, I don't mean in the house. I mean all over town. Oh. You got some kind of plague going on there? Uh, no. Just a bunch of colds and stuff. Okay. All what, right. What's happening there? Uh, I'm just pretty much getting up now. It's, uh, what time? It's 12 o'clock. It's time for Mark to get out of bed time. I would think so. Yeah. Well, I stayed up pretty late. I finished two segments last night. Segment with Sam. And a segment with my friend Scott Balcom, who is the star of the show this week. And, and that's it. So I'm going to make some coffee, and, and uh, I'm recording this right now, as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. yeah. You got a phone call? Yeah, it's very oh, exciting. Oh, be careful what I say. Yeah, no, not really. You don't have to really be careful what you say. Um, okay, I'm not going to be careful. No. I mean, you can say whatever you want. I don't want to, uh, you know what I mean? No, I don't know. You know, I might have people looking for me. Who's looking for you? I don't know. You know, you never know. I uh, got the window and I see uh, funny people walking around. I didn't know you were lost. Why is anybody looking for you? (laughs) Just mentally. Oh, well, that's pretty much a universal disease. I wouldn't worry about that. Other than that, everything's good. Okay, all right. Was the weather nice there in Los Angeles, California area? Supposed to rain tomorrow and Wednesday. Oh, okay. But is it cold? Well, well it's cold for you. Nice it's cold for you because it, it's under 70. It's under 70, so it's freezing. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. It's no, not I a, can read. I understand. It's not an old person thing. That's just you, right? You don't like the cold. I have never liked the cold. Well, that's what I mean. I hate the cold. Yeah, you could never live here. No, I could worry. What's the weather? Well, it's cold. It's winter time. This is, we have real winter. Well, I mean, what's the temperature? You know. Oh, that's right. You just got up. No, I could tell you because you're not. You're not even. You're not even warm yet. No. Oh no, I'm very warm. You mean I'm not cold yet? But I have a weather thing right here under something. I have weather. Oh, here it is. Weather Channel. The Weather Channel says that today, Ashland, Oregon, is. 32 degrees right now. Oh, well, it's better you there than me. Well, that's what I, well, I'm inside. I had the heater on. If I was there, I'd hibernate. It's too cold. I did get up a couple hours ago, but I turned the heater on. And I don't know if you know this, but when you turn heat on... Oh, no, I didn't notice. Uh, I didn't get it over No, I know. What I'm saying is... <laughs> when, okay, go ahead. When you turn the heat on, it sucks the oxygen out of the air, so I fell back asleep. Well, I never heard that before. What kind of heating do you have? Well, it's just an electric heater, but when you turn heat on in the house, the heat, for whatever, I don't understand what the thermodynamic is, but it takes some of the oxygen out of the air. The heat does. So that's why, hmm. that's why they worry, I guess, about... 
fires because when you're in a room or a house that's on fire, it's eating the oxygen up and they're afraid that you'll pass out. That's why you must get, get out of the house. Oh, I see. And you'll burn up. Well, yes, you will burn up if you cannot get yeah. out of a burning house. That's very unhealthy. And it's not fun. It's not doesn't feel no. good to burn up. No, it makes an ash out of you. Ah! Anyway, yeah. oh. go brush your teeth and go outside. Okay, love you, Dad. You have a wonderful rest you. of your day. Hope Mom feels better. Hope you feel better. Love you, too. Bye-bye. Oh, bye. Everybody, Mark Ahrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. It's great to be back. Thailand was tremendous. My trip was outrageous, fun, ridiculous. It's good to see friends, do stuff, eat Thai food, meet new people, be in warm weather, and uh, all that. It's fantastic. It's just going to be my home away from home, 11,000 miles away. Totally different appreciation there for old Mark Ahrensburg. Nobody knows me there. Well, that's not true. My new friends know me there, but the ladies don't know me there. And unlike the United States of America, where seemingly women like the bad boy, the dick, the jerk, uh, I'm a nice guy. And in Thailand, hey, they like nice guys. So I'm a breath of fresh air. Anywho, uh, stopped at the parents, the Costanzas, on the way back and enjoyed that for a couple of weeks. And uh, now I'm back in Ashland. And it's great to be back. Uh, it's winter, it's cold, it's cozy. I get to be with my children, which is fantastic. Love my children. And the older they get, the easier it seems to get. Uh, so I enjoy my time with them. Uh, just the other night, Zoe and I went to go see The Shape of Water. And I had really no real idea what that was about or the content level. But uh, yeah, there was some people making love in there and some nudity and some stuff. But Zoe's 17 and uh, uh, she loved the movie. She enjoyed it. So we went out to dinner, went to uh, Hero Ramen, said hello to Andy, who serendipitously on the way back from uh, L.A. to Ashland, uh, I sat next to him on the plane. Small world, teeny tiny, head of a pin kind of a world. So we went and had a nice dinner and then came back to the apartment and I challenged her to an UNO championship, best of three. And uh, I beat her the first game. She wiped the floor with me the second game. And then on the third and final all deciding game, I beat her in under about 30 seconds. So anyway, that's good. And uh, Sam's on the show with me today. Sammy boy, good times with Sam, good to catch up with him. And on the show today, the main dude, the dude, uh, is uh, Scott Balcom, Scotty Balcom. Scott is a fantastic dude friend. Uh, I met him right after I moved to Ashland in 2002. He serendipitously lived across the street 
We became fast friends, and uh, his wife even flashed me her breasts uh, outside and put them up on the glass of my car. So it was a really great time living in that little shire part of the shire there in Ashland on Bridge Street with all my friends there. Uh, a great introductory uh, experience into Ashland life. So Scott's going to be coming up here soon, and we'll chat with him about this and that. That's really about it. Happy New Year to everybody. Uh, we're well into the new year. And uh, so far, so bueno. Digging being here. Again, digging, not driving the cab. Loving having my nights back. It's really a wonderful uh, sense of contrast uh, to actually not be working at night. And so there you go. I'm, I'm beefing up the graphic design business again. I, I want to go uh, headlong into that. And, uh, and, and make all my money being creative if I can. Uh, speaking of making all my money being creative, uh, there are opportunities for advertising on the Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg show. And uh, I want you to feel free to uh, inquire about that uh, by contacting me directly. Um, also have some sponsorships available. So if you're interested in supporting this show, and me doing it and continuing to do it to keep this going. Please feel free to contact me uh, directly via email at uh, mark at aaronsburg.com or uh, you can uh, find my phone number on my website, aaronsburg.com. And check out my website. A lot of new and interesting graphic design work going on up there. And uh, pimpity pimp, 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 pimping myself because that's what I do. Got to pimp myself. No one's pimping me. Uh, Got to pimp myself. And uh, so there you go. Uh, much love to all of you. Uh, again, it's a pleasure to be back here in Ashland, Oregon and doing the show. All right, here we go. Hey, Sam. Hey. How's it going? Pretty good. Here we are. Yeah. So it's, it's the night before New Year's Eve, and I'm back from Thailand. <laughs> Yeah. And how's that feel? Good to see you again, yeah. Oh, yeah. is that a question mark? <laughs> Whoa. No, it's good to have you back. Yeah, that's very nice. No, it's good to be back. It's good to be not driving the taxi. Good to have my apartment back. It's ridiculous that I have this apartment back. Yeah, you know, that was right? lucky. I mean, I, when I came back last year, I had my apartment back. My yeah. other apartment back. So do you realize, of course, that uh, that apartment of Hargadine was apartment number four. When I moved into the hostel, when I got back here, I was in room number four. Do you know what apartment number this is? Four. That's right. 444. Beautiful eggs of 44 for my baby once more. So coming up on the show, first show out of the gate, Happy New Year! It's going to be uh, Scott Balcom, Scotty Balcom. You remember Scott? Yeah. He was our neighbor across the street when we first moved here. And uh, his son, Adam, is a, a successful graphic designer now. And uh, I hadn't talked and spoken talking. What are you talking about, Willie? To Scott since before I left. But he's a great guy. And I actually, I had a little tour of his, his new house he's working on in talent. And you know he's like this amazing builder, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. But have you seen any of the stuff that he's built? I'm just aware that he's a good builder now. No, no, wait. You stay there. He gave me some postcards of some of these incredible shapes of these things that he makes. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
people generally know him for a couple things. One is he's the granddaddy of the slackline movement. Hmm. You know what the slackline is? No. Maybe you've seen people in Triangle Park. They hook up a flat piece of nylon material that's about an inch wide, and they walk across it. And he... Oh, yeah. He was... I believe 2,400 feet in the air at uh, Yosemite hmm. and walked 50 feet, 2,400 feet in the air. Wow. He is literally the grandfather of the slackline movement, wrote a book about it. He invented a, a winching tool to tighten down the slackline, very hmm. specific. And uh, anyways, he's a great guy. He's an insane builder. But as you can see from these pictures, he's doing stuff oh, yeah. that's not just like, you know, building tree houses yeah. and, and putting in hardwood floors. The guy is like a mathematical wizard is what he is. Mm -hmm. So he's going to come tomorrow at 3 o'clock. Tomorrow's New Year's Eve. He'll be my first getting back into the whole Citizen 44 thing. So we haven't really talked much about Thailand. Anything you want to know about this particular journey that I took? Any questions at all about my month away? What was the weather like? Actually, it was warm, but not hot. And in <laughs> Chiang Rai, I was going with uh, Rick, my friend from Belgium, on motorcycle trips. Oh, yeah. Well, it got so cold, I had to go buy a pair of pants and a jacket and shoes so I could go on this motorcycle trip up to mountains in the north where this is a tribe called the Aka tribe and they grow coffee and that's their mainstay so i brought some back for your mother has she ground it up or drank any of it yet do you know of? Uh, i think she had a glass yeah she liked it oh she did yeah oh good but yeah that's the weather was different and uh it was great to see all my friends and uh it was just a good trip nice yeah and then of course i spent a couple weeks with your grandparents in la on the way back and uh got to do the hanukkah party with the whole family that was cool to catch up with many people that I have not seen in uh, several years. Yeah. So that was cool. What have you been doing on your uh, holiday break, Sam? Playing video games and going to Market of Choice to get energy drinks to play more video games. Wow. Hey, there you go, kids. There's the healthy diet. Video <laughs> games with uh, energy drinks. So you can stay up and play more video games. And what is it you told me earlier this evening? You're having some I'm not, okay, I wasn't trying to sleep until this week. So, other than this week, your sleeping has been no problem whatsoever. I'm saying that last week, yeah. at the beginning of winter break, yeah. I decided, hey, I'm just going to stay up late because I have a kid and I can. And right. Break. So, I stayed up late. Right. And then this week, I'm trying to get my sleeping pattern back. And what happened? I can't sleep. Why? Because uh, I messed up my sleeping habits, but it, I'm trying to get it back. Did you have sleeping habits before these sleeping habits that you're trying to get back that you didn't have before? Not really, no. Okay, so, you know, I'm only listening to you as the other four people that are listening to the show right now, <laughs> which is, I stay up late and play video games and drink energy drinks so I can stay up late and play video games. Where's the clue in all that about sleep deprivation or problems with I don't do that often. I only do it when I have a long period of time off of school. Like in summer, I'll take, I don't know, a month it's separately, not throughout the entire summer, but I don't know, five days here and there, and try to kind of 
just spend a bunch of time playing video games and then going out in the morning, walking across just my side of town or whatever, so I'm not just sitting there. Right. I'm not just permanently in this state of drinking energy drinks and playing video games. Have you done any research on energy drinks at all? Yeah. So uh, what, what do you know about them? Uh, they can lead to diabetes huh. and they can lead to a lot of not healthy consequences. Huh. But a lot of stuff that I do anyways that is kind of unavoidable, like breathe air, it can lead to cancer. Oh yeah and things like that. Okay, so, so you're talking about now, you're blurring the line between avoidability and unavoidability. I'm As if you don't care. I'm saying that I'm a kid and it's not like I'm gonna die from drinking a couple energy drinks. A couple? How many did you have this week? Uh, three. All week you've only had three? Yeah, I don't buy yeah, very okay. many. You know what? I, I, sometimes I only drink like half a day, so yeah. How do you get them? Are you buying them yourself? Yeah. You can buy energy drinks of any kind at your age? Uh, yeah, uh, at the dollar store you can't. You have to be 18, but that market is At the dollar store you gotta be yeah. 18 to buy energy drinks? Yeah. But you can buy them anywhere else? Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Well, I think it's just because you can buy them in mass quantities at the dollar store, so... Oh, yeah. Alright. Are you missing school? Well, I'm missing hanging out with my friends more often, but I have been hanging out with uh, my friend Justin, so that's good. What video games do you guys play? Uh, right now we've been playing PUBG. Uh, PUBG? Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. It's a, what, what is it? Uh, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. Announce? What? Player what? Player Unknown's Battlegrounds. Unknowns? Yes. What's that? Uh, it's a battle royale type game where huh. you have to fight till there's one person left. But it's just you. Well, you can go do it. Is it multiplayer? Yeah, you can play it in right. duos or in. And you're playing it online. Uh, yeah. How was Christmas? It was good. What happened at the house over Christmas? Uh, we sat and opened presents. That's and Christmas Day. Yeah. What happened Christmas Eve? A Tawny family came over. Mm. Uh, we had um, dinner there, and yeah. not much else. Yeah, we no. had dinner there. I brought the uh, Xbox out. We played a little bit of rock band, and then that was good. So you're playing guitar now? Uh, yeah. How's that? Good. Yeah. I'm enjoying it. Can you play anything? Uh, I can play about half of Pinball Wizard before my hands get tired. Really? Yeah. Huh. We'll have to get that on a recorded thing. <laughs> we'll have to record that. You could certainly bring the guitar over here yeah. and, and play. So we just came from seeing what movie? We just Danger Zone? <laughs> Danger, yeah. Um, Was it? Uh, the Darkest Hour. Ah, The Darkest Hour. And uh, what's the lead actor's name? Tom Cruise. Uh, no? <laughs> um, uh, Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman. Yeah. He was in one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. Did you ever see, or did we see it together, True Romance? You know that movie? Uh, is that the one that Tarantino wrote? Tarantino wrote, did not direct. Yeah. It's his first writing, I think his first motion picture feature that yeah. got made, and it's a brilliant movie with Christian Slater. Oh, yeah. Christian Slater's in it. He stars in it with uh, uh, the female lead is, uh, what's her name from the other thing? She was in... Uh... Yeah, I don't know her name. I don't know. True Romance is a great movie. If you've watched Reservoir Dogs, you can certainly watch True Romance. Yeah. Dennis Hopper's in it. Christopher Walken. There's a scene between Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper is one of the greatest scenes in all of motion picture history. Mm. And most people who have seen 
that movie know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Christopher Walken was amazing. Mm. And they both were. They were both amazing. Anyway, so that's worth seeing the movie. And there's a lot of other people. Uh, uh, Madsen. Michael Madsen's in it. He's nuts, crazy in this movie. You know who Michael Madsen is? I've heard of him. Dark Hair Cat. He oh, was yeah. in Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. Man, so many good people were in that movie. Anyway, uh, that's a recommendation for me. Not just for you, but for anybody out there who hasn't seen it. Most people I know have never heard of it. Hmm. There's a few movies like Swimming with Sharks. Not too many people have heard of that. Of course, now that he, and do you know who I speak of? He. Kevin Spacey. Oh, yeah. You know, 14-year-old ball grabber. Yeah. One of his greatest performances ever. So if, if you can still watch Kevin Spacey, Swimming with Sharks is another recommendation. Right. Maybe I should just pick a bunch of movies of people that are in trouble. <laughs> How about that? So... Uh, what's the Louis C.K. movie? Just watch Louis, yeah. How about any that? Any Louis. <laughs> no, but Louis did that thing. Uh, it was a stage presentation that he made into a TV show called Harold and something. Really amazing. Did you see Larry David's um, monologue on Saturday Night Live? I guess it was last week or the week before. No. Well, you know, he's a huge star now. Oh, yeah. Giant. And I love him, of course, as you yeah. know. But he did a stand-up routine talking about all these men that have mm. been busted for this uh, behavior problem. I mean, even Jerry went out with a high school student. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't, I don't think the Jews have a monopoly on uh, devious behavior. Yeah. What do you have planned for New Year's Eve? Uh, I might hang out with uh, a couple of my friends. I, I might not. Where, under the bridge? Drinking <laughs> Ripple? What? Oh, yeah. That's my favorite hobby. No, um, we're, we're going to hang out in the living room in my house probably. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Who's coming over? Uh, Justin is a most likely. And Kai and Timmy are kind of on Timmy. the bridge. Because they live in Medford. Uh, right. Well, they live in Medford and Phoenix. Does mom already know about your plans to have this little soiree? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's wearing the Pink Floyd shirt, Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, a nice choice. And uh, he's wearing shorts. It's about two degrees outside. <laughs> a little bit more than that, but yeah. Oh, more than two Cargo degrees. Cargo shorts. Oh, Dad, so they have thicker pockets. They, they're thick pockets. They're yeah. very warm. Yeah. What are you carrying in those pockets? Um, my wallet. Wallet? You carry a wallet? Of course I carry a wallet. Is there money in it? Uh, money and guitar picks, yeah. What kind of money you got in there? Five bucks. Oh, all right. I just spent it all on Pringles. Pringles? Yeah, Pringles. Oh, goes well with your energy drinks. Oh, yeah. Nice. All right. How old are you now? 13. How tall are you now? Six. One. How did, what do you weigh? Uh, 248. Huh. And you started wrestling recently. Yeah. How do you like that? It's... Yeah, I like it, yeah. Why'd your voice go well, up several <laughs> octaves? That's a tell. <laughs> no, no, I I like it. It's just, we've only done it for two weeks, so it, I can't fully be like, oh, yes, I'm very on board with this. I'm still, I, I, I enjoy it a lot, but I don't know if there's something that I'm not expecting, like, oh, you have to do this, by the way. I'm like, you mean no, like the thumb thing I talked about? Not the thumb up the ass, no. <laughs> I was in Ruby's, like, the second day I came back, and uh, I started striking up some conversations with some people inside and and somehow wrestling came up and there was another cat in there who said that he was a wrestler in high school and he said do you know about the thumb thing and I said nah I don't know what you're talking about what's the thumb thing he said well a tactic if you will to get the other wrestler perhaps in a situation where you could take advantage of him there is the thumb up the ass move 
I guess if somebody's pressing on your sphincter pretty good with your thumb, so I let Sam know over some Thai food tonight that if he continues uh, wrestling into high school, he should be aware that this thumb up the ass thing might come up. Okay, yeah. I did. I don't know about that. I don't know if it will come up, but... Well, I, you know, you I don't know if it will come up, but you don't know if it won't come up. What else you got going on while you're off school? Nothing. No? Not really. What's your sister doing? She's doing a homework project today. Um, Which one? I don't know, some art Is stuff. it the photo thing that we, she and I went and did? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I well, like we did that. a cool project. She came over here and we yeah, my no, camera. I, she, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. She, did she show you the pictures? She showed me a couple of them. Yeah. They're cool, huh? Yeah, they're cool. Yeah. Oh well, I'm glad we got to talk. Yeah. And uh, well, I want to say Happy New Year to you, Sam. Happy New Year to you, Dad. What? <laughs> that was a little tough coming out, huh? First time saying that for a year. <laughs> Happy to do you. Happy to do you, Dad. Scott Balcom. Hey, Mark. How's it going, man? It's going good. Good. So we just reconnected after my trip, and I think I saw you just a couple minutes like before I left. Mm-hmm. Didn't you pick me up? Weren't we over there on High Street? No pun intended. Pun intended. Yeah. Well, I've seen you briefly a little bit, but we haven't hung out in a while except the other day. Like, how long has it been since we hung out for a while? Mm, I don't know. Quite a while. Okay. Is that because you've had a relationship and you live way over there now? I've had a relationship. And you I work live hard. In talent. You were working every night. I was working every day. It right. was kind of really that. Okay. Yeah, I saw you driving your cab all the time. One day that sedan drove up right as I was walking downtown. And I think it was right after you left, but I didn't know you were gone yet. And I walked up to it and there were two guys in it. Neither one of them were you. And I don't know what they were doing. Look it was the black taxi? Yeah, it looked like they were doing a drug deal or something, I don't know. Huh. <laughs> and I wasn't involved? <laughs> no. Wow. When was this? It wasn't that long ago. I think it was right when you, right after you left this last time and I didn't know you had left Oh, yet. okay. Are we the same age? I'm a tiny bit younger than you, I think. How old are you? I'm about to be 55. Okay, so you're a wee bit. Yeah, I just turned 56. Yeah. Well, I figured we were in the... Yeah, the no, park. I remember that you were a little bit older. Yeah. So I met you when I moved here in 2000. Two from San Francisco. And you moved in directly across the street. Right across the street. You could not be any more in front of me than you were. You were married at the time to Kate, and you had a little boy, Adam, A-D-O-M, by the way, for people who... Correct. I've uh, never... I don't know any A-D-O-Ms. <clears throat> His mother informed me, there's someone who wants to be our child, his name's Adam, and he wants us to get pregnant. Yeah. Wait a minute, don't I get a say in this? And she says, no, I don't, I don't get a say in any of it. And she says no. And she wasn't pregnant yet, but she yeah. was telling me that this was going to happen. And that his name, that he was, I said, well, you tell him to talk to me. You tell him to call me. What year was this? Mm, it must have been uh, 89. And this is when you were in Arizona? We were living in Tucson. Okay. And, and she um, was very specific about that. And things. she was very specific about it. And I said, well, if we have to name him Adam, we should name him something cool like Adam Rocket and spell it A-T-O-M. Ah. And she said, no way am I naming my child after a particle. And, um, <laughs> okay, honey. And so it was just one small compromise right. to, to change the spelling, even just the tiniest bit. So did you come up with the A-D-O-M? I don't remember. So you don't know who came up with the solution? Yeah, no, I don't remember the solution. Okay. But, you know, we saw it as a compromise. 
Okay, well that's fine. It all is all the time until it's not anymore because you're not married anymore, right? Yes, but and I was married. I was with the woman for 25 years. No, no, I'm familiar with a life sentence. I was married 26 years. Not a life sentence, but almost. I mean, a big part of my life. Uh, right, and here we years. are still living. And happy and doing a, a bang-up job of whatever the fuck we're doing, which I don't really know what I'm doing. I know you're doing things, lots of different things. So Adam's how old now? Adam is 27. Holy and when were you, how old was he when you moved to Ashland? He was nine when we moved to Ashland. Okay. In 99. And he's living in the Midwest as a graphic designer. He is living in Western Massachusetts, which is on the other side of the country. It's, it's in the it's east. It's not even the West. It's the East. It's the, it's, he's not on the East Coast because he's Western Mass, but Massachusetts right. isn't that terribly big Okay. Well, because I, I was with Sam yesterday and I was mentioning to him about Adam being the successful graphic designer. Does he dude. remember Adam? Uh, I didn't ask him if he remembered Adam. <laughs> I just, I figured he'd either volunteer the information, like, who's Adam? But, you know, he, he remembers you, of course. Uh, he probably doesn't remember Adam. I mean, Sam's only 13. Well, and, and Adam was, you know, playing on his computer and when... I thought we had a nice little adult-child um, rapport yeah. thing going on. Good for him. I mean, I, I love that because I remember I had to do something with him at some point. In high school, he did a little graphic design internship with you. And look, this is what he's doing. That's a wild scene, man. Right. He's great, though. He's super fun. Yeah, he's a really cool guy. We have a, a lot of, of fun together. You guys used to ski all the time. And... Yeah, he doesn't ski so much, but we have a good time when we hang out. Yeah, it's good. So, okay, so you're all living in Arizona. What are you doing there? I was building straw bell houses. What year was that going on? Because that was like ahead of the curve, wasn't it? A little bit, yeah. For five years from 94 to, or it was really over six years, 94 through 99, I was building straw bell houses in Tucson, Arizona. And we did load-bearing straw bale houses and non-load-bearing. We did little guest houses and big houses and shops and stuff. Yeah. I built quite a few structures. And some of the pictures that were in the original straw bale house book yeah. were the first straw bell house I worked on, they took pictures of the framing. And the, the people that wrote it used to come around and the, the Steens, Bill and Athena Steen, they would come around and look at our job. Yeah. The straw bale movement was largely a do-it-yourself thing, but yeah. I was hired by people that didn't... I was working for a contractor, but I was hired by people that, that couldn't do it themselves but wanted to. Right. So we would build a house together. It was really fun. Huh. They make extremely beautiful, very comfortable extremely insulated, quiet houses. Mm -hmm. But the walls are so thick that you also have to build a foundation and a roof over that wall. And it's even good to have a good overhang too to, to shelter the straw, whatever, whether you have a cement or mud stucco on the uh, plaster on the outside. Right. You need to shelter it from getting too wet right. because wet is what will kill it if it gets wet and stays wet. Right. Keep it dry. It'll stay straw for thousands of years if it doesn't ever get wet. We had a situation where we built a, a large straw bale house. It was a timber frame house. And on this land, I had already built the first three load-bearing straw bale structures I'd ever built where the, the roof stands on the straw bales. And mm -hmm. you, you tie it down with cables, uh -huh. essentially. So we built three little structures. The first one was this little 10 by 10 pump house that was for the well and for it had a pressure tank in it and it had um, uh, an inverter for the solar panel. Mm -hmm. So it was an El Nino year, and we were building the main house, and it was a couple years after we had built the first three houses, the first three buildings, 
and we were building the main house and we had all our straw on and every Friday afternoon we would get a storm coming in that would rain really hard and blow with a bunch of wind and, mm-hmm. and one cold morning I was on the job and I'm looking at the straw and I'm checking it to see how it is and we're halfway through building the house and I poke my hammer through a straw bale and it's hot inside and it's wet and it's composting and so we had to tear out a bunch of the straw and put it back then later around that time I had to also put a hole through the a wall in the the pump house and I cut a hole through to put this pipe in for a conduit to hook up the main house Mm -hmm. And, and it was the same side, it was the west face where we had had so much problem with, moisture. with the moisture on yeah. the main house. And the, and the pump house wasn't very far away, had the same aspect. And just with the stucco, and stucco is not waterproof, but it will shed water. Water yeah. will hit it and then it'll run off, it'll get wet and it'll dry. Right. And when I cut a hole through it, the straw inside there was as dry as the hot summer day that we had put it in. Huh. There was nothing wrong with it at huh. all. Yeah, it's really, once you get it all sealed up, it's really in the construction that you have to worry about it. And then if you build it right, it won't ever get wet. So is there an advantage to straw bale construction versus uh, traditional construction? It is so well insulated. And that's sound insulation and thermal insulation. So why is it not used more regularly? You know, we built really nice houses and we didn't really save that much wood. And and even on the load-bearing ones... We did save wood on the load-bearing ones. But as far as energy efficiency, it's a very, very okay. energy efficient thing. Okay. Now, if you had a small city lot, you wouldn't have enough room for the straw probably because it takes up a lot of square footage and right. you have to pay to roof and to uh, foundation that square footage right. that is the thickness of the walls. Right. But we built this house full size, you know, like a 2,000 square foot house. It had colored concrete floors with radiant hydronic heating. And it had never been heated and, and it was finished in the wintertime. So by the time we were finished, it was like 40 degrees in there. So it was a walk-in refrigerator right. and it was just super cold. So the owner turns on the heat and it took a week to come up to 70 degrees. But a then week? A week. But then it maintained week. easy, right? So then he left for like six days or something like that or, so, or a week. And the temperature had dropped 10 degrees in a week. Wow. I mean, once you get it the retains. whole house heated up, and it didn't have furniture, it didn't have rugs, it didn't have anything. Right. right. So there's a thermal mass and thermal insulation. You could do a passive solar design with straw where your heating costs would be very well, low. Well, then why don't they use it more commercially if it's about maybe making more comfort for a lot of people in the same place instead of just homes? Why isn't it leveraged for you know, hospitals or wherever there's a lot of people and energy efficiency is... Well, I actually think there's too much art involved, if you will. Like, it's too hard to standardize. Okay. We used to make these really beautiful round openings and and basically sculpt the straw in a way that gave it these super sexy, you know, this sexy architecture. It actually takes some time to do that. I would do it myself if I had the space and the money to do it. You know, it's probably a little more expensive. So if you spend a little more up front and you spend a little more time up front and it's prettier up front, isn't it in the long run better off anyway? Yes. Okay. There's an argument about super insulation and thermal mass. And some people think, oh, thermal mass is where it's at. But thermal mass without insulation is really not that great because the the idea is you have all this mass that holds the heat and then by the time the heat is going away, it's heating back up again through passive solar in certain places that works, but in certain places it doesn't. Right. This is what you were doing in uh, in Arizona. In the 90s. And how long were you in Arizona? From 87 to 99. Oh, so you were there quite a while. Did you like it? 
I loved it at first. Eventually, I got sick of the heat. Yeah. What's the hottest you've ever the, experienced? I worked when it was 118 in the shade. In the shade. 118. And I was in the sun sweating over a colored concrete slab. Wow. There's a book called The Beauty of Straw Bale Homes or something like that by yeah. Athena Steen. And they talk about John Wooden and they have two houses of his in that book. And I built both those houses. But the first one he built and I framed and helped with the straw. And the second one, he went windsurfing and wrote the checks and I built by the time we got to that one. So in case people haven't figured it out, you build shit. <laughs> is, is this what your father did? Partly. Oh, my dad's done a million things. Where, where, where are your parents from? They grew up in Southern California. They did grow up in Southern California. Yeah, but okay. they, they both came to Southern California when they were very young, from both from Iowa, from different parts of Iowa. Okay. But they grew up in Southern California in different parts and met at a New Year's Eve party. And here we are, New Year's Eve. That is so cool. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, what that, year was that? Do you know? It was probably 55 or 56. Okay. So they met at a New Year's Eve party. Where was the party? Do you know? I have no idea. Okay. I, but I will tell you this. My mom was going to, to uh, community college with my uncle, my dad's brother. And he was a little bit of a geek and he was a little bit older. But my mom had heard that, that Jack, my uncle, had a brother who looked, what did she say, like a gangster or like a hoodlum or something? Yeah. And so she wanted to meet him. And then so when she saw him at the party, she was sort of smitten by his bad boy look. So, see, they do like the jerky assholey guy. <laughs> man, oh man, that's why I go to Thailand. They like nice guys. <laughs> okay, so they met there, and that's where the whole Balcom scene started happening. Yep. And did they get married shortly after? Yeah, see, I can't remember what year that was, but, you know, back then you got married pretty quick. I don't know when they got married. Okay. That was before my time. Yeah, of course, yeah. And you have one older brother? I have an older brother. He's the oldest, two sisters, and then me, and then a younger sister. How's all that? You guys all talk and family stuff? Oh, yeah. We all get along really well, except we don't talk to my middle sister anymore because she died. Did I tell you about that? She died of cancer. It was horrible. You when know, was this? Um, just a couple of years ago. No. No, I had no idea. Oh, I'm so sorry, man. Yeah, it was... How old, how old was she? She was 54. Oh, man. And... Um, so I'm 54 now. I'm yeah. about to be 55. We were the closest in age. We were we were all two years apart in school, but we were a year and a half to two and a half. And she was only a year and a half older than me. So mm. I'm now just older than she was when she died. Jeez, man. Did she suffer very long? Yes. And uh, the worst part, I mean, she had, it was horrible. Um, cancer is horrible. Fuck cancer. And um, the worst part for me was that she was in denial about how dire her situation was. So there was no closure. The last mm. time I saw her, I gave her a hug, and in her eyes she was saying, don't look at me like that. And I said, I'm looking at you like that. That's This is the last time I'm going to see you. And she's like, no, it's not. This is all nonverbal, of yeah. course. This is just uh, my yeah, fantasy of what we said in, yeah. uh, with our eyes. Yeah. But uh, as much was said with words, and um, it, it was, um, yeah, it's horrible. I'm so sorry. But, you know, I've heard lots of people talk about their siblings, and even if one's dead, they, they talk about them that, like they have. Like, I don't, I mean, I still feel like the fourth of five. She's still, of course, she's still part of the club. Yeah. Yeah, she's just not available for engagements anymore. Yeah. She's one of the fingers of the fist. Yeah. With mm. a hand. 
and your older brother, I know that we talked about him briefly, and there was some stuff and some things. <laughs> well, see, see, now you're fast-forwarding. Me and my brother actually get along really well. And my brother is uh, a very interesting character. And when you lived across the street, I was working on my slackline stuff. And he started a slackline company. Right. And I started a slackline company. Right. So we had competing slackline right. companies. Two of the very first slackline companies that ever existed. Yeah. Uh, his was uh, Slackline Brothers, and mine was Slack Daddy. And he tried to get me to work for him, but I was more of the slackliner than him. Yeah. I think he was a little presumptuous in his, his brand. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he, with you first. he imagined that me and and all the other Slackline brothers who aren't actually our brothers, but who are, right. we, I'm part of a group of people that uh, was were very early Slackline pioneers. Uh, and he came later to the scene, and but wanted to run the company called Slackline Brothers. So that caused a little bit of friction for a while. But eventually, he decided that he missed hanging out with me, and now we have a great relationship. Oh, that's good. I love hanging out with him. Oh, good. But I was there during the, <clears throat> the conflict. You were there days. when he kept on trying to recruit me, but I was yeah. competing with him instead. Yeah. <laughs> no, I remember you, no, I was, was telling Sam time. yesterday, Sam didn't, re I don't think he was fully aware of the slackline thing. I said, you know, Scott Malcolm is like the granddaddy of the movement. Like he was one of the first ones to... Do the spire? No, I was the first one to do the. Spire. You were the first one to do the spire in Yosemite. Is that yeah? What, yeah. The Lost Arrow Spire in Yosemite. Fifty feet, twenty-four hundred feet up. Wait, 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 wait! Don't cheat me, Mark. Fifty-five feet. Oh, sorry, dude. All right. Almost. I mean, there's people doing it like very, miles very now. Very, very nearly, yeah, okay. very nearly twenty-nine hundred feet off the okay. the valley floor. It was the first nylon line that had been walked at that high. And before that, I walked the first nylon line, nylon high line between under a bridge in Pasadena. And that, that thing is a piece of nylon about an inch, an inch like, wide. An inch wide. And, well, the first bridge walk, I walked a piece of nylon that was two inches wide. Yeah. And then I walked in a piece of nylon that was under the bridge also that was one inch wide that was maybe a quarter inch thick. It had two lines inside of it. And then I walked that same line at the Lost Arrow Spire, and then nothing happened for a long time. And then two of my friends went back eight and nine years later and walked the spire again. And mm -hmm. it was the first time it had been walked since then. And then 10 years after I walked it, on the same day, July 13th, we all went back in 1995 and walked the 10th anniversary walk. It was my 10th anniversary, and all three of us walked it. So in 85, you, you were the guy to do it? 85, I was okay. the guy to do it. So then in 95, the three of us walked it. We were the only ones that had walked it. One of them was the legendary climbing bum, Chongo, and the other one was Darren Carter. And uh, Chongo taught us how to rock climb back in the early 80s. And then no one else had done it no one else did it and then uh the famous adventure athlete artist uh dean potter walked it he was the fourth person to walk it and then and then everybody started paying attention and nobody really paid attention to us and then uh, people started paying attention and darren had walked it without a leash in 95 after the 10th anniversary walk up about a month later he walked it without a leash which is to a lot of people, like the the gold standard. I mean, it's like full commitment. You're up two fifths of a mile, and if you fall, you die. If you do, well, you can catch the line. But and then Dean Potter did it, and then it well, it still didn't quite catch fire then, but it, it became popular with the slackliners, and you kind of had to. A lot of the good climbers were slacklining in Yosemite, and then it spread to Europe and South America, and then eventually to Asia and Africa. 
So who was the first person that conceived this idea? A guy named Adam Grosowski was in Yosemite, and they had a climbing gym in Camp 4 for the uh, search and rescue are a bunch of serious climbers that save everybody if they get stuck. And most of them are like world-class climbers, and most of them you haven't heard of, but they're just as good as the climbers you have heard of. And they hang around in Camp 4 at their, they have their own campground, and they had a gym. And one of the things they had in their gym was a slack chain. And the good people could walk it fairly well. And Adam Grosowski went to Yosemite and he saw this and he couldn't walk it. So he went home and he didn't have a chain. So he got a piece of one inch nylon and he stretched that up instead. And he started walking on that. And then I met him in 1983. Him and a guy named Jeff Ellington were in Yosemite Valley and they were walking on on skinny pieces of nylon and swinging them back and forth and hopping up and down and Adam could do a handstand and they could juggle and they could wow. pass clubs between the two of them. They were really good. Wow. And I saw this, me and my friends saw this and we were like, man, this how old, is... How old were you? I was 20. Mm-hmm. And they went up and attempted the Lost Arrow Spire, but they took a piece of cable. They practiced on nylon and they took a piece of cable up there and they got it real tight between the spire tip and the rim of Yosemite Valley. And then in the spire is like this finger or phallic shaped thing that has a very small summit to it. Mm-hmm. It's only big enough for like three people to sit down. And they broke a bolt tightening their line. And so then they took it down and they didn't do it. Right. And so I just had this idea that as soon as I heard the idea, I, I had this idea that I was supposed to do. It was this like crazy voice. And so once I saw that and I watched them quite a bit and then I got up on one of the lines and I had him, I had Adam help me get up on the line and I could walk halfway across it and then I was afraid. The the, the line was really stretchy, but not, it was like, it was tight, but it had a lot of stretch to it. Mm -hmm. And so it was really scary and it felt like, you know, it could just spring you off. It was like being on a, like on a, it was like being on a really a rubber band or something yeah. like it can really send you and any energy you put into it it brings back up so i went home and i bought a slack line and my friend chris carpenter went went home and he got a slack line and we started slack lining together and within a few months we went up and took a two inch piece of slack uh, webbing under the 134 freeway bridge in pasadena and walked the first high slack line mm. how high was that it was about 150 or 60 feet above mm. gravel. Wow. But it was real short. It was a, between a, uh, arches under a freeway bridge. Mm-hmm. When big trucks go by, the, sh- the whole place shakes. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the place that we would sneak off to um, when we were in high school and we'd climb up there and cops go by, you just hide up there and you just wait for them to pass. And Anyway, we walked that the bridge quite a few times and in 84, I went up to try to walk the Lost Arrow Spire and I'd come up with this threaded line and I had figured out how I wanted to do it and and I ended up just falling a bunch of times and then I fell once where I missed catching the line and I swung around through the sky and you had a leash on I had a leash yeah and I fell through my into through my outstretched arms and then the leash started to catch and it was tied to my side so it started to swing me around and I was flying around like uh, with my arms out in front of me and then it swung me around and I grabbed onto the leash and pulled myself back out like Holy crap. Like as fast as a cat jumping out of a bath. Wow. And then Darren, who was there, he helped climb the spire, Darren Carter, and he didn't really slackline. He said, holy shit, that was the raddest thing I'd ever seen anyone do. You were flying through the air. You looked like Superman with your arms out and stretched in front of you. (laughs) 
You screamed like a girl. <laughs> I go, I don't remember scream. I remember the flying with my arms outstretched. And I remember, I thought the scream was only inside. I didn't know. I was actually let it out. <laughs> <laughs> you could contain I, yourself. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I didn't record the sound of that scream. I right. do not know what it sounds like. I yeah. just know that. And you don't recall that ever happening again, that you were in such a perilous situation that the little girl and you escaped? Oh, God, no. <laughs> One shot not, deal, you heard not, it, dude. Not intentionally. <laughs> right. Wow. No, it toughened me up pretty good. I bet it you did. You know, it really, it really... Um, Take some of the fear out, huh? Yeah, yeah, it changed my life. Yeah. It really uh, was... Because you didn't die. And you can't get that scared twice. Right, you've already got... It's kind of yeah. like you can't unknow what you now know. Right, so exactly. It's, it's, it's like fortified that. your position. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's like you realize... This is what it's like to die. Okay. And now I, I feel better. Right. <laughs> Let's try that again. <laughs> it's not that stepping off a high line. I mean, it still scares the crap out of me. I haven't done it in years. Right. And and without as much testosterone on board, it's hard to, you know, get up there and decide to step off. Right. Can in you fact, get a shot of that before you go? Well, that would help. <laughs> um, but, you know, Adam, who can walk a slack line, my son, um, we were up at Smith Rocks, and the kids are always trying to get me to jump on a high line if I'm around one. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you want, you should do it. And I'm like, yeah, I yeah, don't really no, want to. I don't think so. And I'm like, I know how scary it is. I know how hard I have to try. Right. And I know how hard it is to, you know, I don't want to back down if I have to try that hard. Right. Like, it's, it's no, this. because you already have that fear so, mechanism in your face. It is such a struggle. Yeah. Like, Darren explained that it was like, he had, before he could walk the line, and this is even with a leash, when he was still using a leash, he had to give his survival instincts the day off. Right. Take the day off. Right. Don't, don't bother don't me with stupid to... things like staying alive. Right. I'm going to throw myself at this. Right. And uh, so, so Adam gets up there, and he's like, yeah, I want to try it. And this is a really, it's, um, it was actually the, the second, it was after the spire, so it was like the third high line ever walked. And it was done by, uh, by Adam Grosowski, the first slackliner. And he walked on it like uh, first he did it on a cable. And is, it did interest, it. is it interesting that your son's name is Adam too? It has nothing to do with. No, that. I know that. No, people think that. So did you name him after okay, that? Okay, that's why yeah. I said. But yes, it's interesting. That's no, all. it doesn't mean anything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I told you it was all Kate. So anyway, Adam gets up there, and this is the the monkey face at Smith Rock. Yeah. And it's a popular highline. Lots of people have done it. It's very short, but it's you're up four or five hundred feet. It's very scary. You're out what's called Panic Point. I think that's the name of it. And you're out on this tongue of rock. And by the time you're ready to step off the line, you can't see any rock around you. You can only see the ground, which is four or 500 feet away. Oh, my goodness. And then you're looking at this. It's called the monkey face. It's the spire, this big, it's more of a pillar. And it has this kind of an ugly monkey face on it. It, it, is, it does look monkey-like, but you're walking right into the monkey mouth. And the monkey mouth is not some cute smiley mouth. It's like this awkward, angular, not flat at all mouth that looks like by the time you get there, you won't actually, you're going to so hit your like head. It's like a scary movie. It's like walking into the mouth of a scary movie. Yeah. So anyway, Adam gets up there confident that, you know, he can walk a slack line. That's not a very long slack line. He's walked plenty of slack line. He's never tried a hard one. Uh, How high. old is he at this point? He was like 18 or 19 okay. or something. Maybe he was 20. And he gets up there and he gets leashed in. And only then does he realize he can't move. He has one foot on the line and one foot on the rock. And when you're standing there looking at the ugly monkey mouth, your peripheral vision, you see just space. You right. see what's four or 500 feet away, the hillside below you. 
he couldn't move. He tried to move his foot, and it was like it, it was it was involuntarily stayed on the rock. Yeah, he, he moved it a little bit, yeah. but it was like a twitch. Right. And then he tried it again, and his leg twitches again, but it won't leave the rock. So finally, he backs off. And then when we left, I'm surprised he didn't get hooked at that point because he's like, "Oh my god, I'm so mad! I totally I can't understand why I couldn't do it." And I said, "Ad, if it was easy, it wouldn't be a big deal." Right. Of course. <laughs> Well, he just, he, that whole throwing the survival thing out the yeah, window. Yeah, yeah, you've got to learn to <coughs> give your, you know, I, I thought when I first did it, I thought, it's mind over matter. I should be able to, I can walk this on the ground, close to the ground. Yeah, I'm just and changing I'm, and I'm, my I've gotten elevation. really good at it. I just need to ignore that part of me. It should be easy. It's a mental trick. Right. And the time I fell and didn't make it in 84, I had this experience where I'm trying to step off and I'm trying to talk my body into it. And, and I didn't have the idea to give my uh, survival instinct the day off. That was Darren's idea. But You tried to convince your... I'm, I'm saying, hey, no big deal, man. Let's go. And <laughs> I, I could feel and hear every cell in my body screaming. And I'm like, we're not going to die. And they're like, you know, yes, maybe, maybe you, the soul, don't die. Maybe, <laughs> right. you, maybe you don't. Us cells... We right, die. exactly. And we're not ah, going to do it today. Interesting. We do not want to. And it was the weirdest thing. It was like it was like people protesting going to war or something. It was uh, like this. But it was like a revolt in my whole body. It was like compelling. It was, like you and, couldn't yeah, argue yeah. with it. And, and every cell in my body, I can, I can hear them individually and in unison. Don't do it! Right. <laughs> and the brain's like, we got this under control. No problem. Yeah, it's tough. Wow. It's tough. And now there's people that are really good at it. People get good at it and they get comfortable. I never got to that point. So you never were able to just... I, I No, I never mastered it. I tell people I was a terrible highliner and they laugh at me. I'm like, no, I'm serious. I was a terrible highliner. I mean, you know, I made it across. I, I have a video of it. I look, you know, I struggle. I fall. I eventually make it. There's guys now. There was a guy that just did a line 600 and something meters. I can't remember if it was 628 or 678 meters long. Mm-hmm blindfold what blindfold he just it just happened the other day and he's the guy i think he's the same guy that just walked a mile is this the guy that runs same guy well there's a bunch of guys that are really good now a mile has been walked a slack line a high line has been walked a mile it's like you're on a mountaintop and there's a canyon and there's a mountaintop on the other side and you're gonna walk across the canyon the the guy that said that he just walked blindfolded he said that he was in his own world. He went to this weird interior world. And that's just fascinating to me because how long it must have been an eternity. I mean, it must have taken him, you know, an hour to do it or something. Yeah. You listen to balance and then it becomes like this dance with balance. It's like playing an instrument, only the music is balanced. Mm. And it's like you are the musician and the slack line is the instrument. And you play a little tune. And it's like just noodling around. You don't have to have a tune in mind. You just play. Mm -hmm. But there's this listening. You're always listening to this balance. And so I can only imagine what it's like to be blindfolded on a line that's... Like I mean, how long is it? It's like, it's like over 2,000 feet or something like right. that. Or it's mm -hmm. somewhere around 2,000 feet. I'm not sure. Anyway, it's crazy. It has gone way beyond what I ever imagined. And now it's like, it's international big. Oh, it's everywhere. It's a sport kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have Facebook friends who have friended me through Slackline in India, and Iran, and China, and Japan, 
in uh, South America. Well, Brazil is really big. You've been asked to travel the world, haven't you, to show I, up at uh, been, certain events I've, I've and been, things? I've been to France to judge a slackline contest and, and the Lost Coast. The Humboldt Classic, known as the uh, THC. Oh, that's funny. Right. Yeah. For all you out there who don't know what Humboldt is famous for, it's not slacklining. It's, it's the highest city in California. No, that's not right. It's the... Literally, it is the highest. No, city no, no, no. Humboldt. No, they say University of Humboldt, the highest school in California. Right. So the the reason we're saying this is because of it's known for marijuana, like, like. Yeah, but everybody knows that, right? Well, I don't know. Does everybody? Well, before it was legal, which is here. Yeah. Humboldt was uh, Humboldt and Trinity and uh, Del Norte County were the golden, the the uh, not the golden, the um, Emerald Triangle. Okay. I don't know. I don't really know these things. As big a pothead as I am, I still. Well, when you were in high school, if you ever had any good pot, it probably came from Humboldt. Or I don't remember ever having any any good pot when I was in high school. Well, you didn't live in the right valley. I lived in the San Fernando Valley. I know that's not the right one. I lived in the edge of the San Gabriel Valley. Right. I wasn't actually in the valley. I lived in the hills. So okay, your parents came here from Iowa separately. Ended up in Pasadena. They didn't end up in Pasadena until they got married. Okay. My, my mom grew up in Highland Park, and my dad grew up, um, I don't know where he grew up. Okay, that's fine. And, and what did your dad do for a living back in the day? Oh, God. My dad's done tons of things. For a while, he was a carpenter, but he's also been a salesman. He's been an uh, inspector um, of buildings. He's been, he built pools for a while, swimming pools. Oh. He did all kinds of sales jobs, sold copying machines. and. He's still things. around? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's still working. Is he really? Yeah, they're trying to keep him from working, though. How he's, old is he? He's born in 34, so he's about to be 84. Wow, and what's he doing for work still? He's an inspector. He drives around and watches them pour concrete and then okay. signs papers. And That's like a that. pretty cool passive way to stay. Yeah, um, I think um, starting to have a little problem with driving and stuff. So I don't know how much longer they'll let him work. <laughs> they could drive him around, but, but that's he, the only thing that keeps him from doing his job. Well, you know, driving the L.A. freeways is really his pastime. He probably, or he used to know him. I, I, he's used a navigation for a while now, but before yeah. navigation... They used to have a book, the Thomas Guide. You remember yes, that? I was in the flower business for 20 years. Yep. I used to route 300 deliveries on Valentine's and Mother's mm-hmm. Day with the Thomas Guide. Yep. Well, my dad used to be a Thomas Guide master until he was able to hire somebody in the office. And then he made them a Thomas Guide master and he would just talk to them yeah. once cell phones came out. Yeah. You know, so his knowledge of the freeways back then was unparalleled. Now he doesn't pay attention. He just listens. He calls it the bitch in the box. He just goes where she says. Are your parents still married? No, I haven't been for decades. Okay. Where's your mom? My mom lives in a an area called Deleuze. It's in North San Diego County, inland from Camp Pendleton, in a very geographically interesting area of boulders, and they grow avocados there. I have a good sense of direction, and I spend a lot of time outside, you know, and I, I don't get lost easy. And I always get lost going there. And so I finally looked at a map of it, and it looks like... The area got squished and then pulled apart, like, uh, like geologically. Mm-hmm. And, and leaving it with just like, like not canyons and valleys, but just hilltops. Like mm-hmm. all these hilltops with uh, an eventual valley rim around them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, interesting place. She has a hilltop. My sister has a hilltop there. And my other sister has a low hilltop. Two of my sisters and my mom all live down there. 
Okay. And how's she uh, doing? Uh, my mom's doing well. And so she about the same age as your father? She's a couple years younger. She just turned 81. And she's retired, right? She doesn't yeah, she's retired. Yeah. No, she has a good retirement. Yeah. What did she do? She was a dispatcher for the South Pasadena Police when I was a kid. Right. And then she went on to work for LAPD. She had a badge that said Los Angeles Police Department Scientific Investigator. Cool. She was like yeah. the first CSI people She was person? like she, she was like... I've never seen the CSI shows, but there's a bunch of them. Maybe they have one like hers. She did question documents examinations. So say you wrote a bunch of bad checks, or say you had a check cashing ring, which, you know, you might look into. I hear it's lucrative. She told me how to Who writes checks anymore? Well, nobody anymore, so I guess that doesn't work. (laughs) But anyway, so there would be these check cashing rings, and people would earn forgeries and stuff like that. And so she would look into that sort of stuff. And then, and she would... She was an investigator? She was an investigator. She would go through these things and, and examine them very carefully. Yeah. She would do her, her investigation and then she might have to testify in court. Right. And and she had a lot of stories like she this. She was but an expert witness. She was an expert witness. Yeah. And she was their question documents examiner and yeah. scientific investigator. Yeah. So th- this one story that I remember where a doctor's wife died and they thought that the doctor killed the wife. He said that he was writing prescriptions for her and but he'd like poisoned her or he had OD'd her or something like mm-hmm. that. It, they're like, well, we need to see all the prescriptions and everything sure. that you wrote for her. Yeah. And he wrote them on a prescription pad one after the other, and the impression of sure. went the through. pen went through. Yeah. And she could prove that in court of law, and he's probably still in jail. That's pretty good investigating. Yeah. What's more, her more, background? More interesting. I mean, she didn't just like show up and start doing it. I don't know. She answered it like it was like. I think they helped train her. I don't think that she oh, had a, like a training previous to that. Did she go to college? Yeah, she did. But she, I don't think she had a bachelor's. I think she had a, um, a, a two-year degree or something. Mm. But one of the most interesting things, there was some famous psycho killer that was in prison and they would intercept his letters that he had with his girlfriend on the outside. And she would get to look at them. Anyway, some of those were pretty That's crazy. wild. Yeah. What was it like uh, growing up around these people, your parents? <laughs> Well, we had um, a big family too. Well, we we outnumbered them. So you leveraged that to your advantage. The children. Well, I was the fourth of five kids. My oldest brother and my oldest sister, the two oldest, are very rebellious, and so they they carved a wide swath through. You know, they destroyed my parents on the way. So hmm. I was one of those free range kids. It's not ah. legal to be a free range kid anymore. But, right. But I was totally a free range. Interesting. Kid. But not only that, we had this large piece of property that had a tree house with rope swings and we had an old barn. Did your dad build all this stuff? My dad built the tree house and the rope swings. I think it was something that he always wanted to have a swing. I think he grew up in the city someplace, like in the valley or something. I'm not sure where yeah. exactly. So yeah, we had this enormous oak tree. It was the oldest and biggest thing around. Mm. And um, it was right in our yard. And it was so prominent and out of place that people thought that our house was a park and they would tell us that we can play here if we want it's a park because <laughs> dad had installed a little drinking fountain oh. um down at the bottom so we wouldn't run up in the house and, and bug my mom that's funny yeah yeah so yeah. people just assume based on the the appearance of your home that they nobody has over. a drinking fountain except parks yeah we would be sitting up in the the living room and all of a sudden we would see people go off the swing by seeing the oak tree shake it shook in this way when people would go off the rope swing. And we had all these rope swing games. And Did you finally just give up and let people do whatever they wanted? Yeah, but it was hard when, you know... When you like, wanted to do... No, no, some, I mean, you, uh, it, 
it only ended in conflict when, you know, they start saying, we can play here if we want. Instead of just going home when we tell them. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, but we had fun. I always thought, you know, like I did the Lost Earl Spire thing and, and all that. And I always thought that, you know, I had a pretty normal upbringing and it was kind of weird that I didn't come from a circus family and that I ended up doing the Spire and learning Slackline and getting good at it and all that stuff. I was at some family get-together where it was my sister's wedding, but she was um, 40 when she got married. My youngest sister, or she was in her 40s, something like that. And there was a, a woman who had been older than me when we were children, but she was, uh, you know, just a friend of my mom's kid. Mm-hmm. So my mom's best friend's kid that I didn't mm-hmm. really know because they lived in a different city, but we would see it at events like that. And she said, when my mom would drive me over to your house, she would say, now the Balcom kids do all this crazy stuff. Don't you do what the Balcom <laughs> kids do. And I was stunned. I thought... Oh my God! Well, you were, thought you were normal. I did well, grow up in a normal. circus family. Yeah, yeah. So that was a that was a revelation. There were two early influences, and I think they both happened in seventy three or seventy four or something. Seventy four, maybe. Mm-hmm. Anyway, somewhere in the early seventies, early mid seventies, two things happened. One thing: Galen Rowell climbed Half Dome mm-hmm. without pitons and made the cover of National Geographic. Mm-hmm. Now, back then, nobody said Nat Geo. It was National Geographic. Yeah, right. And it was one of the only magazines that people say. So he, at the time, was um, he was a climber and he was a photographer. And it was his first, I think it was his first shoot for them. He went on to become a famous photographer. But being on the cover of National Geographic and everybody that, you know, like those hung around. So you saw it when it came out and then people had them. And so you go over to someone's house and you're flipping sure. through the National Geographics. And here's the cover of a guy on, um, I think it was on Thank God Ledge, up on Half Dome. So that influenced me, I thought. Okay. I saw they had ropes, and I thought, if that's safe, I would do that. Like, you know, back then, <laughs> anything dangerous, people were called daredevils. Right. There wasn't, you know, adventure athletes. Like they Evil had Knievel. daredevils. Evil Knievel. Evil yeah. was the... He was the, one of the first daredevils. He was, he was the best known. Yeah. And he was best known because he crashed his Harley a bunch of times. Yeah, and came back and did it again. And did it again. And now people do that kind of stuff in lighter bikes, and they do flips and all kinds Crazy of stuff. Crazy stuff. Yeah. But then the other thing was Philip Petit. Philip Petit walked the World Trade Center around the same time, and that mm. was big news. And I remember reading that in the news, and I remember reading that. Like, first it was in the, you know, breathlessly in the newspaper, and then it was later more detailed in magazines, and then it was later in books. I had this, like, adventure journal book or something. Right. I think it was before that my brother one day brought home a rope and said that his friend was tying up a rope to two trees and walking back and forth. Oh. And so he and I, and he was older than me, so he how did old all were, How old were you then, you think? Uh, nine or ten. Okay. Like nine, maybe. So we started walking on a slack rope, like a, a hemp rope. And I wasn't very good, and nobody was really very good. But I had this idea that this was something that I, so you that get I back was going to be good. Yeah, it was like this okay. inkling, like this thing that, you know, kind of got at me. And so so by the time I met Chongo in 81, he wasn't Chongo then, but uh, Chuck Tucker, he's famous climbing. But you don't know who he is, but no. So he taught us how to rock climb, and then he was like, oh, yeah, you know about walking chain? And I had already been walking rope and chain and walking on railroad um, rails, mm-hmm. and, you know, because we would walk along the railroad tracks when we walked down into town and stuff. So I I did stuff like that a bunch when I was a kid, and so when I saw Slackline, I was just like, that's the right. shit. Walking on chain's boring, but as soon as it... Slackline has this dynamic 
the rigidity that, changes yeah it's not so static like yeah. a, like a chain there's only so much you can do on a chain but a slack line it stretches right and so you can start to swing it back and forth you can bounce it up and down you start to get those two motions going together and you're riding it like what people now call surfing uh, which I call riding the line and there's all kinds of crazy stuff and then you know it went into trick lining and stuff but that was much later but I think that those things the National Geographic thing and Phil Petit, those are definitely influential. Oh. I mean, I remember seeing another climbing movie that was something from the Alps, but I was just amazed. This guy is climbing up this steep wall, and then he gets to the top of the wall, and then he's going on this snow field. And, you know, growing up in Southern California, the idea of a snow field up in the mountains was crazy. Like, that happens in the summertime, or that's in the wintertime, or it was confusing to me, but it was really... And you gravitated towards that. Oh, Meaning, yeah. Meaning, like, you're totally oh, yeah. into the snow and the yeah. skiing thing and yeah. all the outdoorsy stuff. But I always gravitated towards the mountains and the desert more than the beach. And everybody was about the beach. Everybody right. was about surfing right. and... I tried surfing with some friends of mine, and I used—I did used to skimboard. And my friend Chris, Chris Carpenter, who was also learned slackline the same time I did, he lived in Hermosa Beach for some time, and when he was in high school, and so I got good at the beach, but I never liked laying in the sun. Right. I never liked being sunburned. I never really learned to surf, and I swam in the ocean every month of the year without a wetsuit. Right. You know, eventually. But the mountains and the desert were really more fun to me. So I started going out to Joshua Tree. And that's where I met Chuck Tucker, who taught me how to rock climb. Mm. And we just ended up, you know, he took us on a couple climbs, and he was quite a bit older than we were. I was 18, and he was 29 or something like that. And which seemed like a lot. And, you know, he's like this adult, and we're just these kids. Right. And uh, he takes us climbing, and then I was thinking, you know, that's cool, but I wish we could learn this. I wish there was, because there was no climbing gyms back then. There was no right. way to learn it. Unless somebody taught you, you couldn't really learn it. And it's not something you can really learn from a book. Those sort of things, you have to kind of go with people. Yeah. So when we were getting ready to leave, he said, here's my number, and I work in Hollywood part of the time, and, you know, you should give me a call, and we'll go out to the mountains. And I was like, wow, really? So we started hanging out with this guy. It turned out he was sort of homeless, and we would drive him around. And But he taught us how to climb, and, you know, and he was really generous because he always knew that he would need something. So anyway, for somebody that has really not had a proper home, since uh, he once, I don't think since he, he shared a house with my brother back in the 80s. He was, a, he was a computer programmer. He would sit in a hammock and work on computers. Anyway, um, he's done amazingly well for himself for somebody who is, hasn't has never owned a home and has barely lived in a well, home. Well, he sounds like he's not attached to certain things and has been kind of this nomad kind of freewheeling dude well it's kind of like he's he's sort of a hero to the people that you know the van life people the people right. that, that climb and camp for a living because he's an old guy still doing it right you know? he's uh how old's chongo now he's got to be he's 65 by now but he's he's been doing what he wants to do sometimes you can't live like other people <laughs> when you want to do what you want to do yeah well we make our choices yeah speaking of how'd you do in school Kind of curious about the whole school thing. No, I was terrible in school. I did not do well in school. All I, through school? Was there any point when you did do well in school? I did really good in a woodshop. Okay, well that makes sense. And you know, I did like science. Yeah. And I and I could pretty much pass the science tests by just looking at the pictures and reading the captions. And I was interested, so I would listen to the lectures. But, you know, do reports and stuff? Fuck that. How did your parents feel about your lackluster performance in school? I mean, again, I was a free-range kid. 
So, so um, they weren't even really keyed in. No, your they activities, were. were they? they, you know, but we had five kids in a small house. We had one bathroom and two bedrooms, and and it was just like, and you know, the words of my mother that ring loudest in my ears are "play outside." So, even though both my parents went to college, none of us kids did until my little sister. She dropped out of high school and then went back and got her two-year degree. And then she got a four-year degree. And then she went back and got a master's in social work. Hmm. And she still does that. Oh. But I wanted to learn more directly. I didn't want to learn out of a book because who's writing the book? I wanted to go get dirty. I wanted to go touch stuff. So I ended up carrying wood. And what I mean by wood is lumber. I what was, do you mean you carried lumber? I was just come back from Yosemite from climbing when I was young. And I was sleeping in my brother's house, and my friend Tony, who's 10 years older than me, comes in. He says, hey, we need somebody to carry wood. He was building a house or doing a remodel or something. He says, you want to help? And I said, nah, that, I hear that's hard work. And my brother comes in, stands in the doorway, he goes, you better go in. I'm not paying for you. How are you going to pay for food? And I'm like, what, you know, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> you mean I got to buy it? So it was my own dear oh, brother's man. tough love that got me out there carrying wood. And then I, I was 18 or 19. Okay. And I had done some stuff a little bit before that, but I had lived at Darren Carter, Slackliner Darren Carter's mom's house. And she was fixing up her house, perpetually fixing up her house. And if you would do something to fix up the house, she would pay us. And she had kind of a weekly thing. It was kind of a crash place. And she would cook. And she would let you stay there. And it was like 35 bucks a week or something like that. Oh, God. And I was getting 5 bucks an hour or something. I can't remember how much she was paying. But so you were dialed. <clears throat> you were getting yeah, fed. Yeah. And then sometimes she would even like give us a little bud or something. Right. You know? And, then, and if we worked more than that, she would actually pay. And so I did that for a while. And then when I started carrying wood for my friend Tony, I started getting in with the real carpenters because I was doing like, cause I had picked up wood shop and my dad, he built a, a big bridge at our house and he built a tree house and he built railroad tie stairs. And how did he know how to do that stuff? Because he had been a carpenter. Okay. One of the many things he had done was to be a carpenter. Okay. And he's sort of more slam bam where I was more of a perfectionist. I was more of a, a finished carpenter and woodworker. Right. But most of the work was framing, so I had to learn that. So in the end, I learned, you know, I mean, I can, I can make anything. I, well, I know we hired you to convert a three-car garage into something completely different. Yeah, there was that. And that was an awesome project. Yeah, yeah, the hardest part about that was that they hadn't built it for backing for your drywall, so there was all kinds of missing backing and funkiness about, because they never intended to put drywall on. But, mm. but it looked good when we were done. It was exactly what I wanted. I wanted a photo studio an office for my wife at the time, and uh, a spare bedroom. Got all those things. Okay, so you're shitty in school, but uh, you're obviously a smart kid because you gravitated towards the science. You gravitated towards the things that you've employed in your, your current profession in many ways. Yeah, well, I wanted to make stuff, but I thought I would make cool stuff where I've ended up making a lot of regular stuff, and I have made a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, but, yeah, but I mean, I can make anything now. I've seen what you make, and it's that's partly the, the mind-boggling science part of how you've ingested all this mathematical equationary stuff and things and space, and you've converted that into some pretty fucking wild-looking stuff. Right, which we haven't even talked about yet. No, no. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of things that I do. I have yeah. a lot of, like, the 
geometric work we haven't talked about. Um, I do art. That's what it's I was leading. Geometric in nature, but what it really is about is an exploration of shape and structure and perception. Where can people see what you do? Um, on Instagram, I'm Winfield Scott Balcom. It's Winfield Scott dot Balcom. Okay. There you and go. on Facebook, I'm Scott Balcom, and there's some stuff in there. Okay, cool. And B A L C O M. B A L C O M. Yeah. So. It's geometric in nature. I feel like I've built a lot of different things and they are all the artifacts of exploration of perception. Mm -hmm. We live in a round world. We live on the face of a round world. And we live in a three-dimensional world. We say both of these things. We we say we live on the world, we live in the world. But we really say we live in the world. We live in a three-dimensional world. He said, well, exactly what does that mean? You know, like the X, Y, Z, the straight lines are straight forever, lines are parallel, lines are... And the premise of the three dimensions is that all the lines are straight, and there's three lines that are perpendicular with each other. Now, as a builder, I know that that perpendicularity doesn't really happen on its own. Okay, so there's the round world, and then there's the three-dimensional world. Mm-hmm. Now, these two things, we think that they fit seamlessly together. Now, as somebody that has spent a lifetime measuring things and trying to make straight lines, I can tell you no straight line is straight forever. No line is straight forever. It's hard to make a line straight for 30 feet. And the earth is round. Now, if you covered the earth in boxes, if they were big enough, you would see that they're, they're touching at the bottom and there's a gap at the top because they right. have to go around the right. world. Right. So this may seem like a small and trivial thing, but we continue to show the map as rectangular. Right. And it distorts all of the shapes on it. Well, it's trying to flatten something out. You're trying to flatten something out. If you really could flatten the earth, it would look like an orange peel or a squished bug. It would not look rectangular. It doesn't look rectangular. And we're taught in school that it distorts a little bit. It's a paradigm that is wrong. It has a lot of usefulness, but we're starting to outlive that. It gives you guidelines, but it does not reflect the world. Right. Now, if you go out and you look in nature, nature never builds with right angles. In the three dimensions, there's three special measurements for the three dimensions. Mm-hmm. One is plumb, one is level, and then the other one is square. It's just square to the level line. But that's a choice. That's a choice we make. And it's something that I, as the builder, have to make happen. It never happens on its own. Never, ever, ever. I have to force it. So you have to, to manufacture an environment. I have to ma- was... manufacture this idea right. to fulfill this paradigm. Which is totally unnatural, really. It is manufactured. Right. It is a manufactured idea, yeah. but we believe that it exists without us. And now, in a mathematical way, it exists without us, but a lot of things exist that we don't acknowledge mathematically, right. that we don't see. I have a series of, of pieces that are the things you should know about a cube and probably don't. And I have four of them, I think, that I think I showed you most you, of them. You did. You showed me at the house. You, you and, kind of let them fall apart and put them back together. Yeah. And so it really, if the world was like this three-dimensional matrix, which I think, like you remember in the matrix how they have like the code and it's going yeah. down and like it's kind of implying that, that the code is building the three-dimensional like world. Like a curtain, yeah. That doesn't actually happen. I mean, obviously it's not code, but... It's not like there's this three-dimensional matrix that we inhabit. There's a three-dimensional paradigm, an idea that we build on the face of a round world. Right. And this is very different. When I try to explain it, I sound crazy. But when I show people the work, it's so much more visceral and it makes so much more sense. It makes sense instantly because you can see I'm not lying to you. It's not like like I build stuff that looks 
M.C. Escherich, but they're objects. And so you know they're not... In fact, almost all art, especially two-dimensional art, they all work through illusion. And the illusion is that you have a painting here, a beautiful painting of a woman. She's naked. She yeah. has something draped over her. And that's completely an illusion. It's a flat surface. The woman's not there. It's just paint strokes. Right. That's the artist's idea is to to show you an illusion. And if they're good, they can manipulate emotions. They can manipulate your, your idea of perception. My work is about questioning the seat of perception. Most art is an illusion. I'm showing you the truth that sort of underpins the illusion. Well, it's kind of the reality of the real dimensionality of... Yeah, it's it's like it's like questioning those things and, right. and showing you these relationships and taking, like, I take a pattern, and the pattern is pieces of wood that create big squares and little squares, and then I make that into a sphere. And that two-dimensional pattern of the big squares, little squares with planks in between to create that space, then I make the entire thing spherical. And then I let the sunlight shine through it, and then I take a photo of that. So you see the original two-dimensional pattern stretched out on the ground and the three-dimensional object. Mm -hmm. Now what happens is when you look on end and you look at the pattern, you can see that pattern, but as the curve, as it curves around the sides, new shapes are created because I'm following a, really a set of instructions more than I'm creating instructions for myself and following them. Mm -hmm. And when I've done work where I have an idea, I imagine something, I build it, it looks cool. It doesn't look quite as cool as I imagined, but it's really cool. I came up with essentially formulas or constraints, and then I made something I didn't know what it was going to look like. And beautiful things evolve. And sometimes I th see in these very strict, very rigid, simple geometric patterns and combinations you start to see little pieces of life poke out, like a, a school of fish or body parts or different things like this. And that is the most exciting part. Shape is, is a language. Everything is made with shape. Geometry that is really out there, the way the universe works geometrically, is so much more intense than, than just the, the XYZ. Right. XYZ is really the arithmetic of geometry. Most of all other math was created because arithmetic is inadequate, but we imagine that it's all three-dimensional, which is really like arithmetic. It's arithmetic manifested. Mm -hmm. And in this system, we don't do a lot of things round. Wheels are round because they wouldn't work square. But buildings, you know, they put you in your cubicle inside a square room, inside a square no, building, on a grid street, things up. and they tell you, think outside the box. This is insanity. Of course it is. Well, this is the hypocrisy of being a human being. Yeah. It's being told to straighten out, try to straighten that line, straighten oh. up. Oh, and think about how many terms. Let's get this straight. Let's try to straight and narrow. Yeah. The, and then, like, beat around the bush. You're not going in a straight line. You're not getting to the point. Right. And if we imagine the world as a straight line, we always have a future to get to. We are always going someplace. We don't have to worry about the past. Right. That is wrong. We right. live on a round world. And this is a blind spot, especially for Americans. You know, Europe still has, there's a lot of squirreliness in the old cities. But the U.S. is built so rigid and yes. cubic. And in fact, I've spent a lifetime looking at plans and building things from plans and you have a plan, and it gives you a floor plan, and then you have one side, and then the other side, and the other side, the elevations. You have sometimes you have a section, and it's where the building chopped in half, and it tells you all these things. There's no perspective in plans. Everything's flat. So you can't really build round things 
I mean, you can't depict them in plans in the normal way. Your elevations would look odd and you'd actually have to introduce vanishing point. Put that in the plans and that's never in the plans. It's always flat. And I've actually had, you know, smart architects that have the vision thing going. They can see what stuff is going to be mostly. And I'm working on this this architect's house or it's his, his shop facility, his maintenance facility as we called it. Yeah. And I look at the plans and I see what he is talking about and I see what he's thinking and I go to build it and I realize that he doesn't he's see not seeing what's what really there. And I call him up and I'm like, you know, this doesn't work. And he goes, it worked in two dimensions. And I said, well, this is your three dimensional technician telling you when I add that third dimension, it doesn't work. But he trusted me. We had a good rapport. So, I mean, sometimes they're like, screw you, you're a peon. You don't know anything. I'll get somebody else to do it. Right. And they also won't be able to do it. It worries me a little bit because I don't think people really understand the three dimensions as well as they should. And then when you go to 3D printers, it's cool. There's some cool stuff you can do, but you're removing the maker that much further away from the actual process of making. Look at Japanese architecture as, as an example. The lead carpenter would be the lead builder, and they, would, they called him the ridge pole. And they called all the carpenters the master builders mm. on temples and stuff. Mm. I'm not sure on like houses and stuff how that worked, but building the big temples and the palaces and those sort of things, you'd have like one master builder and then everybody would work under him as apprentices and... And they designed the stuff. They had a board and it was like their plan and they had a story pole where they could get all their measurements off of. And so they're building these things through generations and through passing this knowledge down directly to the people doing the work. Right. Now, when you have this kind of knowledge base and mixed with a skill base, you can build some amazing things. But now when you start to separate it out, so then in modern times, you take the master builder and there's like the overall design of the facade and the layout of the building. And there's people to build. And then there's engineers that in Europe, they started realizing that they couldn't just build anything they wanted. Some stuff fell down. Right. So they started figuring out, well, how do we figure this out? And they started putting math towards it and they started developing engineering. Now what's happened is we've divided the building job into three jobs. There's the builder, there's the architect and there's the engineer and now during the 70s and maybe the 80s or the 60s and the 70s the architect was the god he was the guy and he didn't have as much building experience but he could you know deal with the builder and yeah, he would, if he had any head. engineering he would get the engineering done you know like frank lloyd wright you can't build any of that stuff there was some stuff that engineers back then made him they like the guggenheim he the the roof was different than he wanted but like his famous house, Falling Water. Like they, they say, you can't. There's all these cantilevers and stuff. They say, you couldn't build that today because they wouldn't let you. It would end up being enormous steel and concrete structures because, because engineers have too much sway now. And the engineers have a lot of sway because the lawyers are saying, it's got to be... It's all about liability. It's all about liability. Yeah. It's all about insurance companies sure. and lawyers it's all based and on engineers. Fear, so thing. now, yeah. the engineer who has the least skill and aesthetic design designs the structure and then the architect just you know puts fluff on it puts right. lipstick on the pig right and these structures the further they get into it the further you get the the head and the hands have been separated right and so now the head is someplace else and the hands are like way over here and the the builders who have experience are, are when i started people were like well that's stupid people's work and the smart people are getting their masters in business you know, like the whole idea that everything is about business, you know, the whole capitalistic idea, when the last rhino horn is worth more than the second to last rhino horn, right. this is a system that 
has flaws. There is a vision thing that sustainability is like not important. And in fact, the big crash was largely because of a lack of vision of the future. Sure. It was this, as long as we're making money this quarter, right. nothing else matters. That's right. Well, it turned out a lot of things mattered, and the entire economy crashed. Right. But we still haven't learned. We're still, we still separate the hands from the head. And I find architects and engineers' mistakes all the time when I'm building stuff. Usually, it's either not polite or it's not even practical for me to call them up and tell them that I found their mistakes. But I also find my own mistakes. When you have a job where you don't find your mistakes, and they're usually not like math mistakes, usually it's not that the engineers make math mistakes, it's that, it's that they solve problems that are misunderstood by their process of solving, and that they never build the things that they design, so they really don't know what they're doing. They people keep on building these buildings, they think it's fine. But there's pieces that they're missing. There's right. things that they don't know. There's things that they, they, they should know. And there should be more of a, a, a vertical conversation between those. But there's not. Nobody gives a crap what I think about a building. But I know a lot about it. I know a lot about structure just from, from experience. Right. So the whole geometric work really delves into that. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to talk about it without seeing it. Yeah, go to Instagram. Winfield Scott Balcom. Winfield Scott Balcom. And look at this stuff, which is, it's very visionary stuff. And it's fascinating pieces of art. And I've told you, I mean, I could see your, your stuff in a museum already. Like you've already hit that place where you're developing ideas that are not of the norm. That you're calculating and you're contemplating on shapes and ways that things work together in a dimension and reality that we're not accustomed to seeing. So anyway, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, Mark. Did you say things that you wanted to say? This feel pretty good? Yeah, I think so. I mean... Five or six minutes out of that. I could edit at least two hours out <laughs> and, uh, and get the, the good 15 minutes that I was looking for. <laughs> Well, that's the show. Hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed doing it. Thank you, Scott Balcom, for coming on and uh, and sharing uh, stories of your life experience. And uh, it's great to have you as a friend. Appreciate the fact that we've reconnected and that this show actually is maybe partially part of the thing that has even bonded us more than we were bonded before. And uh, I look forward to seeing your incredible objects in the museum someday. Hopefully my children and their friends and their children will see your mindful, intelligent objects at a museum near you. That's pretty much it. Uh, all good, kids good, life good, love good, love you, and appreciate you. And uh, I do this for me, but I do it for anybody else. Because I don't know who else is listening, I have to do it for me. Because again, if nobody else is listening, I'm still doing it. I'm still doing it. Maybe that makes me insane, essentially, because it means I'm talking to myself. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Oftentimes, I will conduct conversations with myself if I don't have somebody else to bounce some shit off of. So, it works. That's all I'm saying. All right, word to your mother's uncle. On a side note, I just want to say, Sam, 
super fun to do this with you. And I'm actually hopeful that you will return often and, and do this with me and bring your guitar and, and your fantastic sense of humor and your ability to set me up. It's good. It's a good team. Good, good, funny team. Funny team. To find out more about Scott Balcom, visit him on Instagram under Winfield Scott Balcom, B-A-L-C-O-M. Or you can find him on Facebook. Whatever you're doing is not working. There's only one way you can change that, and that's to change what you do, 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 change what you do. I am Citizen 44.